Hello, and welcome to the Plus One podcast, where we discuss diversity and inclusion in our workplaces at the University of Melbourne. I'm your host, Medo Purnada, Senior Lecturer in Management and Marketing at the Faculty of Business and Economics, University of Melbourne. In this episode, we host Susan Ainsworth, Professor in Organizational Studies. I talked to Susan about her work on people with disability, ageism, and gender equity. Susan also shares a brief history of diversity and inclusion in organizations in Australia and her experiences with it as a professional and later on as an academic. This episode was recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung, and Bunurong peoples. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Alrighty. Hello, Susan. How are you? Hello, Meadow. I'm fine. How is your day been so far, although it's like 11 (laughs) a.m.? It's okay. The drive was fine. I drive in from outside of Melbourne into uni, so it can vary. Um, Do you visit campus often or...? Um, (laughs) Oops. (laughs) Do I visit? Do I visit my workplace often? It depends what's going on. It depends what's going on. Uh, fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I live close by, so I'm here every day. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I understand, uh, like, especially after COVID, people prefer to work from home most of the time, especially if you live out in the suburbs. I totally get it. So sometimes it's just more convenient. But how are you? How's your week been? Yeah, my week's been okay. I'm trying to think what's happened. I I think I've got short-term memory loss because I can't... All the days blend into one, to be honest. Um, just this normal sort of academic stuff of um, working on a revision to a paper and wondering how we're going to get it done by the deadline, that sort of thing. I have one of those too. Yeah. Yeah, it's just so stressful. But good luck with it. Thank you. So, Susan, um, tell me and our audience a bit about yourself, your line of work, um, how you have become interested in your line of work, anything that you would like to share about your work? One of the things that I teach at Melbourne Uni is a subject called managing diversity. And I've been teaching that for about 10 years, or a bit over 10 years. But before I became an academic, I worked in organisations and I was remembering after you asked me on to the show, that one of my first real jobs was actually in what used to be called EEO, so it was Equal Employment Opportunity. So I worked in that in, would you believe, 1990, which is a very long time ago. And uh, it's just interesting how things come full circle. I worked in organisations and I actually did my first managing diversity project or program in 1996. Wow. And one of the things reflecting on all of this that 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 gives me is a sense of perspective over time of the sort of trends we see in diversity and inclusion. Hmm. A few years ago, maybe about seven now, time seems to merge into itself and the years go by, but it was probably about seven years ago. Um, You know, there, there tends to be interest in diversity and inclusion. It waxes and wanes. 
I remember people talking about how diversity and inclusion had become all of a sudden this fashion. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, no, um, it actually was first coined as a term in like 1989, 1990. So... Anyway, so that's one of the things that I can bring to it is actually having lived through the whole thing in Australia. That's pretty cool. I mean, what were the trends back in 1990s, if you don't mind me asking, for diversity inclusion? So, well, it wasn't called diversity inclusion in Australia. It was called things like equal employment opportunity and affirmative action. And in the late 1980s, we were still trying to convince people that equal employment opportunity and affirmative action was not going to mean that uh, merit was compromised. So we were still trying to convince people that it was a good idea, that it wasn't going to be threatening. Um, And what's also interesting, I remember we distinguished ourselves from the American approach because we used to make quite a point of saying, you know, it's about equal opportunity to compete when it's not about quotas. That's how the Americans do it. We don't do it like that. And then about 2012, I noted that in the press in particular, there started to be this sort of criticism emerge that, oh, hang on a minute, the merit principle doesn't work. So what we've been applying all the way, saying it's really just about allowing people to compete on merit on an equal footing. Suddenly there was this sort of public consciousness that, yeah, merit doesn't cut it because we actually haven't seen any progress in, for example, the number of women in certain sorts of occupations or professions or getting into senior leadership roles. And uh, I, again, I thought that was really interesting to reflect on when I think about a young, my young self of 1990 trying to convince people that it's really just merit at work. Of course, merit is a very, um, you know, it's a gendered, it's, it's a racialized concept. So trying to unpack that. How do we conflate things like, you know, the ideal worker with a certain conception of merit that ends up excluding a lot of different kinds of people? That's pretty interesting. You would think that it works, right? Because I'm not familiar with the discourse that has been happening since 1990s. Why do you think that merit didn't work? And why do you think... So have we... And also, have we moved back to quotas for, like, assigning some certain roles to some more minority groups to make sure they have got it? Or how does it work these days? Why merit doesn't work is because people's judgment of merit is influenced by everything they bring to that. So the sort of conflation of having to do things in a certain way or achieve certain things in a certain way um, with being a certain sort of person. And what tends to happen is that organisations, you know, they're social systems, social systems left to their own devices without intervention reproduce themselves. And so you get people looking at job candidates, for example, and saying, oh, that person deserves this job, they're the best candidate, and not consciously, but thinking, they remind me of myself. So basically, we define merit based on the previous patterns that we have. And those pre- uh, previous patterns are kind of biased against the majority groups. Which are still ironically called minority groups. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of irony going on in the whole area. 
and and certain ideas of what merit should look like and the form it comes in become institutionalised and they just don't become questioned. So we get that sort of reproducing itself as well. Um, and I forgot that your second question, merit. Um, uh, do we have these days? So what is oh, the yes. approach today? Um, yeah, yeah. For diversity? So I noted this in about. I'm trying to think. It was 2010 or 2012. I remember the. I remember the front cover of the newspaper because it had um, Quentin Bryce, um, the Governor-General, and another female leader, uh, political leader on the front page, and they were the headline was something like about, you know, merit doesn't work. So what we've seen is that different organisations, government, have been trying to introduce not sometimes quotas, sometimes soft targets, so trying to actually make it... Um, much more concrete about what the expectations are. So, you know, things like the Australian Stock Exchange um, or the, uh, bringing in certain requirements that there'll be a certain percentage of women, for example, on boards or um, organisations requiring that um, if there's going to be a selection panel for a position, there needs to be 50% female candidates on the shortlist. Organisations and government have done various things. We're still very resistant to actually bringing in hard quotas. And, you know, it's an area of debate. Oh, yeah, I just have so many questions. So how would everyone else perceive that approach? I mean, firstly, if I'm a woman, which I am, (laughs) and (laughs) just some clarification. Just a thought experiment. (laughs) And then... I know that, for example, I have been recruited because I was a woman, not necessarily because of my merits. How would I react to that understanding? Well, I think I think there are different there are different mechanisms for doing it. Certainly, there is some experimentation with making positions targeted as you know, this is actually a position that's set aside for person from a particular group to fill. I think that's different than saying, you know, we need to have um, a diverse shortlist to recruit from so that there be 50% of female candidates and 50% male candidates. That doesn't mean that a female candidate will be selected as getting the job. That just means that you're not ruling people out from actually being, you know, interviewed. Um, So... Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of criticism of um, of those sorts of measures um, for various reasons. People find it difficult to comply with those sort of directions or guidelines. Um, and, you know, people face things like entrenched, um, you know, gender segregation in certain professions where they struggle to find female candidates. But then again, females are, to me, are much easier uh, the, the female demographic compared to, I'm not sure, LGBTQI demographic or um, like religious minority groups or has there been any advancement on those or have, have they entered the discourse as well for diversity, inclusion and equal opportunities or is it still... Yeah, is- yeah, no, certainly um, to varying degrees. So I think the religious minority is... or, or has not has not really got a lot of airtime in Australia. Um, uh, certainly, other groups, but I think the the one that that sort of led the area has been gender. And so, 
It's a really unfortunate trend that diversity groups seem to end up competing for the same amount of airtime, you know, so you get that sort of internal competition or or people thinking, well, you know, if we do it for this group, then we're going to have to do it for every other group. So um, I think there's a lot of complexity there and recognising that there's intersections as well. So back to you and your background. So you were in the corporate world and then you started your work on diversity inclusion in 1990s. And tell us a bit more, what happened after that? What was the trajectory that got you to this point here today? And then we'll get to what you do today. So you really want me to talk about my career? If you like. Okay, okay. Well, it's always like, you know, you can make it make sense in hindsight. You can make a story hang together with the benefit of hindsight, but at the time it doesn't seem like that. Um, Yeah, so, well, I worked in organisations and, you know, did the sort of people-related stuff in organisations, that sort of thing. I had a very sort of love-hate relationship with universities, um, so a bit of a recidivist student. I kept enrolling in things part-time, so I was working full-time and studying part-time and collecting graduate diplomas and enrolling in the master's and sort of thinking, oh, I might do a PhD one, one day, but couldn't quite come around to that. So it took me about two years to get my head around that. Um, eventually I ended up enrolling in a PhD, um, because I could get a scholarship to do it. So I left my full-time work to, um, take up a scholarship and become a full-time PhD student, which was a shock to me at the time. Well, because I hadn't really had a lot to do with universities except being a student. I didn't really know how it all worked. I didn't know how PhDs worked. And, um, I was just a bit shocked as well about how um, the sort of hierarchy Mm. that worked, and I wasn't particularly used to that. (laughs) So um, I probably caused a little bit of um, ruckus about that because I was, by that stage, I was in my, I don't know, early 30s, early to mid-30s, and it's like, hmm, don't be treating me like I'm 18 years old. I'm an adult. I've given up things to come back here, and, uh, you know, I have, a, I have my own particular research interests and I've got a right to have a say about things and all of which was not necessarily how things were done. Oh dear, I shouldn't be talking about this stuff. But, I mean, it's, it's only the truth, right? So yeah, when you start your PhD, there is, I don't know how it is these days. I mean, I have got only one PhD student, not even from our own faculty, but he's quite senior in industry. Yeah. So, um, I mean, he's basically has got freedom to explore different topics based on uh, his own experience. So I would personally, and that might be my style to consider to supervise that student in a way to give them a bit of freedom like to, to a good extent to explore, but also be there to just guide the research and research methodology in a, in a sound way. But has it changed? Has that hierarchical perspective or hierarchical modelling of universities changed, do you think, since then? Has it improved? From my perspective? Yeah. No. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us more. (laughs) But I think think that demonstrates, well, no. And I think um, the sort of hierarchies we have, the sort of social hierarchies, professional hierarchies we have, I don't feel have changed. 
Um, but I think it also demonstrates one of the great, as I say, dangerous myths in the diversity inclusion area, which is um, the belief that somehow progress is inevitable. And that's not been borne out by evidence. If we think about, you know, the progress that's been made in gender segregation or representation of people from different ethnic backgrounds at senior leadership positions. Um, so, yeah, so similarly... Um, again, left to their own devices, institutions and organisations tend to reproduce themselves or just keep doing the same thing. And I think we've done that too. That's a fascinating point. And the fact that you mentioned the myth that progress is inevitable, not necessarily all the time. I'm, I have lived through the living example of that in Iran. I was born after the revolution in Iran and before the revolution... Um, There was a completely different system, very much inclined toward the West. I'm not saying it was a good system or a bad system, but the progress... It, so Iran back then came out of uh, a really, really um, dark times toward a bit of progress, and then there was the revolution and everything again went back. Even that's why, that's why we believe... I personally believe that, for example rights like marriage equality, LGBTQI rights, minority rights, if not taken care of, if, if not celebrated, they might actually get reversed. And and what you mentioned here is is really true. I I I believe in that. But with respect to hierarchy in academia, and if you like a bit elaborate on it, what is that hierarchy? How does it manifest? What how does it show itself like Um, in a way that if you like to to talk about it, if not, we can move on to another topic. <laughs> How does hierarchy manifest in uh, universities? Oh, is I it, for example, a supervisor and a student? Is it between different roles in academia? For example, professors, associate professors, senior lecturers, lecturers, is it that hierarchy... Or is it hierarchy between academics and professional staff? How do you see it? Where does it manifest? Or is it all of them? I think it's all of them. I mean, I was talking specifically about, you know, coming into the PhD program. So um, I suppose for me, just staying with that example, I see that um, it replicated. So I started my PhD in 1999. So what are we... 24 years later, 24 years oh, yeah. later, it may even have gotten a little worse in that I think there's a danger that that uh, students are infantilized by the system. So, uh, and I think better things happen when we assume that students are adults and can make decisions for themselves and actually own their own research project and have a right to have a voice. I'm not saying they shouldn't be guided. Of course, that's the, the role of a supervisor in a PhD. But um, that it's... Hmm, I'm trying to think of a diplomatic way to say this. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, I don't think I can. Yeah, well, it's all good. Um, but back to diversity inclusion. So your journey, you were in industry and then you were going back and forth to do whether to do PhD or not. And then you were introduced to this whole new world of doing a PhD, which was a bit a tough 
thing for you because you were coming back from industry and you had some experience and then literally have been told what to do and what not to do like a child, which, yeah. And how did you manage eventually? Well, I don't think I did for the first, at least the first year, 18 months. Some people might say longer. (laughs) (laughs) I was a bit in denial that I was doing a PhD for quite some time. So people would ask me what I did and I'd just say, oh, I'm doing some research or da 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 Yeah, I couldn't quite get my head around it. And I never intended to become an academic. That's amazing. I know. So this is really true confessions time. Um, But... I enrolled in the PhD. I was interested in my research topic, but I also wanted to buy myself some time because I wanted to work out what I wanted to do next, not not thinking that it would actually be academia. Mm. So anyway, but that's how it that's how it rolled on. But I think the the thing I'd highlight there is the reason I never thought about becoming an academic is because I was never socialized to expect that that was even a possibility for me. So I think Um, I'm always mindful of people's aspirations reflecting others' expectations of them and whether or not they think something is possible. So um, just because someone doesn't aspire to something doesn't mean they're not capable of it. It might be that they haven't been brought up in an environment where they actually even think that that's possible or attainable for them. Sure. That's also a really good point. Yeah. Believing in people and... That is a problem sometimes I have in academia. Um, I think, to me at least, it is is possible for everyone um, to publish really high-quality research um, if shown the right way of doing it. Not to mention, we all know that academia sometimes is very friends and family, but that's a discussion for another time, not probably for diversity and inclusion podcasts. But the fact that everyone with a reasonable mental capability and know-how can do a really good quality research. And and sometimes in academia, speaking of hierarchy, I've noticed that that hierarchy takes out our self-confidence or people are biased to... And diversity and inclusion in academia also in editorial boards of journals, how women or minority groups or international researchers not from the Western world are perceived or discriminated against in top journals. Specifically, I think from personal experience in American journals, I might be a bit biased or wrong myself. But that is also a point of people not believing in people, other people not belonging in their own tribe, not being capable of doing good enough research, um, which is, um, to me, to me, a personal experience of being excluded sometimes. But I, I have managed to some extent to enter that world, which is a very exclusive world, and I don't like it very much because of its exclusion of many other people. Um, but, yeah, I totally agree with you that all of us are capable of doing if, if being believed in and if, if just shown the path of doing it. And that gets into the whole diversity and inclusion part. Mm-hmm. So what happened after the PhD and then moving on to yeah. what you're doing today? So I actually did my PhD on um, older workers. 
So I did it on age, you know, which is a, a diversity group. At that point, I wasn't part of that group, but I am now, which is one of the funny things. Come right? on, Susan, you're young. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I'm serious.、Mm. So it's really interesting for me to have over time become part of the group that I was studying.、Uh, And also, people's reactions to that research topic. Like, people did not embrace it. They thought, why would you want to study older people? And I had one chapter of my thesis, I remember, was on older women workers. And I remember an older woman who was a feminist at a conference saying to me, why would you want to, why would you want to look at that? You know, with some distaste in, in her voice. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, this is, this is a moment I'm going to remember that you're reflecting to me that actually studying this group of people is, is distasteful or not very interesting. Anyway,、um, so that as well as gender from early on has been part of the sort of recurring themes of my work. So, I mean, I got a job. I, I moved to Sydney. I got a job as a lecturer, which was a tenorable position. At the time, I was also looking overseas and I'd gone for interviews in other countries.、Um, and because that's what you were supposed to do, you were supposed to leave Australia. And if you wanted to be an international, you know, proper academic. And I thought about it and I thought, yeah, no,、nah, I'm not going to do that. And I, and I remember saying at one interview panel about, well, if it is about being an international academic, why can't you do that from Australia?、Yeah. What does international mean, Northern Hemisphere? Why does it mean the UK or America? It's、right? so different from Australia. <laughs> I know, right, I know, I know. But, but that was the sort of. Yeah. So I'm also someone who is very grounded in the local context. And、um, one of the things that I try to do in my teaching is talk about every country, for example, having its own diversity story,、um, talking about Australia's diversity story in terms of, of culture.、Um, and, you know, the two big things for us are、uh, immigration and Indigenous people.、Um, and Using that, even if we have、um, a high proportion of, of international students, being able to understand the diversity and inclusion issues in one national context gives you a framework for then being able to reflect on your own. So, taking that and thinking about, okay, so how does that maybe play out differently in my own country, in my own context?、Um, yeah, so yes, so I didn't ever work overseas. So, I've only ever worked in Australia, which I'm not embarrassed about, but it's interesting because I'm probably in the minority at Melbourne Uni in our faculty of never having worked anywhere else. No, I'm the same. <laughs> <laughs> but、um, I hear you. And、um, look, I have been reading this book、uh, for a few nights now, and then、um, it's about organization theory. Probably have heard of it by Mary Jo Hatch. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. and, and, and Conliffe, who visited yes. us yes, yes.、Um, a few weeks ago. And then、um, in the preface, Mary talks about her being in the United States and in the United States back at, in the 1990s, I think. She was talking about in the 1980s, 1990s. When she got her position,、uh, most of the methodologies were really objective. Objective methodologies, positivist methodologies.、Um, and then she, 
she went to Denmark and Copenhagen Business School and uh, then the methodologies there were more interpretive if I'm not mistaken or yeah. qualitative qualitative yeah yeah interpretive that's uh, my people <laughs> yeah I love that actually uh, the, the, it, it gave her that uh, that insight but then again we are living in the age of internet obviously and chat GPT recently um, and then you can go to conferences here and there and talk to people so I'm not sure um, how living um, physically in another country would would enrich research these days uh, or your perspective although to me it would be fun so I would personally take a sabbatical in Europe or something um, but yeah I mean I think I think it it is a bold move when everyone is doing something and you decide not to do it um, you just don't get into that peer pressure um, and how do you reflect on on that decision in hindsight oh look I I think I probably oh, it's hard to say really I mean you can't speculate about how things might have gone I think I probably would have been a higher profile academic if I'd gone overseas um, I probably I might have been quite unhappy though <laughs> and um, yeah I don't know I don't know I mean I'm Australian for good and bad um, and you know I'm I'm based here I like to reflect critically on being an Australian and talk about that in the classroom as well um, and I've always had an interest in other cultures and other countries um, and yeah I think that's what we should be doing in Australia no, that makes perfect sense so speaking of diversity and inclusion what are you working on these days and what are some of the stuff that you want to share with with me and the audience about the topics of your research the topic of your service leadership um, please let us know okay um, so there's a few things uh, I'm working on at the moment And they actually probably all fall into the disability area in various ways. Uh, so I've got a research project at the moment. It's actually being led by um, Dr. Peter Ginn, who's a research fellow um, at FBE, um, part of the Future of Work Lab. Um, but it's a project on chronic illness and about um, whether leaders in particular, how comfortable they feel declaring their chronic health conditions. Um, I've also been involved in inter interdisciplinary work on disability, so um, with people like Keith McVilly and, and others. Um, so that's some of the stuff that I'm doing at the moment. Um, in terms of uh, teaching, so I, so I do stuff other than diversity and inclusion, but it's all always all about work in some form. So it's either work and policy, it's work and organisations. Um, and the other thing that I notice is about universities is we so re rarely reflect on them as organisations. So for someone like me who taught, who teaches about work and organisations, um, it, it doesn't seem to be very common that academics in this sort of area would reflect on the university is also place of work and an organisation and is managed and has managers and um, let's think about what we're teaching 
and the gaps between that and what we're doing. So, <laughs> well, that's always true, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, but some of the things that I'd like to see is that people, particularly when there's a change at work or an organisation, they actually think about what that might mean to people who um, you know, belong to different diversity groups. Is that going to impact them um, to a greater degree? Is it going to disadvantage people? Um, there was a study done uh, about a decade ago by someone who looked at people that were managers with a disability and how they responded to um, organisational change and also the extent to which they wanted to um, move up or experience different jobs either laterally. And I think the, the term she used was glass partitions. So it's a sort of riff off glass ceiling and for gender um, and that people were really um, anxious about any sort of organisational change because they had been able to somehow negotiate a set of conditions that worked for them or a relationship with their manager where they might have been able to get what they need, the adjustments they needed or the flexibility, and now that was suddenly up in the air and it was not guaranteed that they would get that again. Um, and that's the sort of thing I think we need to think seriously about in organisations and also universities as organisations when we make these sort of blanket policies um, about things like needing to return to campus and not being able to work flexibly, how let's apply a diversity inclusion lens to that and think about who that might exclude. The other thing is um, people talk a lot about inclusion and that can be defined in various ways. Um, I think of it like empowerment. You can't actually empower someone else. The issue is whether you do you feel included or not. So it's for me, it's a, it, it is necessarily a subjective, a subjective thing. I can try and foster the conditions in which people might feel a sense of inclusion, but the ultimate test is do they feel included? Do they feel like they belong and are accepted for who they are, both in their own work group but in their organisation as well, more broadly? That's very interesting because most of these policies are really top-down, the inclusion policies. But whether it's like someone having a depression and telling them, don't be sad. I mean, how does that? It's going to help someone. But how do you genuinely make someone, for example, a disability minority group, how do you make them feel included within the organization setting? Well, yeah, I mean, you can't actually make them feel included. The issue is whether they experience it as inclusive or not. Um, but, you know, you can start with things like actually finding out how they experience the organisation. Um, and, you know, that, that takes a, an open spirit of inquiry and being willing to find out that, you know, things are not positive from their point of view. So how difficult is it to navigate, you know, the environment that they're in? Um, allowing mechanisms for their voices to be heard. So actually you know, f trying to find out genuinely how they experience it and being able to think about, well, what could we do that might help with that and being able to show that there's a response to that. Um, so, I mean, it's not rocket science. 
you know, it's this whole thing about people think, oh, well, that's just common sense. Well, that's great, but it, why is it not common then? I mean, common sense isn't very common, right? Uh, so some of those things like making people or, or giving people a sense of psychological safety and freedom to voice when things aren't working for them, um, you know, feeling brave enough that they can speak up to say, well, this is what I need in order to be able to do the job or I can do the job, but I need to do it in a slightly different way than everyone else. And that shouldn't be seen as problematic or I'm a problem because I'm asking for something. Most of the adjustments, um, the reasonable adjustments that people um, get or ask for to cope with disability um, are usually things like flexible work. Um, and if they are any sort of modification, they're usually very low cost. So it doesn't take a lot, but it does it does take that someone actually thinks about it and is willing to actually go and inquire and ask and listen and then make some sort of response, you know, genuine response to that. Do organisations ask about it or have they started asking about what different groups of minorities, in this specific case, disability, um, disabled populations in organisations need and then trying to facilitate that need? What is your perspective from your line of research so far? Yeah, I mean, I think there are. It's, it's a bit similar to other sorts of issues with work and organisations. There are there are islands of excellence, and then there's the, the rest. There's a very big tail. Um, I don't think it's done very well. I mean, I think there are some leaders and there are some really good examples. But if I think about it over time, and again, that's because I've been doing this for so long, you can say, well, yeah, but I was hearing about that 10 years ago. It doesn't really seem like there's a lot new that's going on. Um, and I think disability is one of the areas where we actually haven't made a lot of material progress. So um, I was asking how we can make the voice of disability groups being heard and actioned on. Um, in our faculty, I remember one of our colleagues actually um, was making made a video of accessibility of different areas within the faculty and how hard it is. Sometimes, for example, if you're on a wheelchair to open a classroom using your security key and then opening that really opening that really heavy door get in with a wheelchair and because the moment that she tapped on her card it opened and then that she, she didn't have she didn't have time yeah didn't have time to get, to get to the handle the again it locked which yeah. was pretty frustrating yeah. Yeah. and that was one instance of it and I, I remember when the video was aired everyone was super emotional about how hard it is if you live that experience it is absolutely tough to get by yeah and it it's is. a reminder every day yes it is that you are disabled yes yes it is and <laughs> yes uh and people say well can't you just you know tell your manager that you're you've got these restrictions or you need X and Y. And you can do that. Of course you can do that. But I think it's different to understand the daily negotiation that has to go on with the environment and also with people around you that have different expectations that expect that you'll be able to turn up here at a certain time or you'll be able to, you know, for example, <laughs> 
get across campus, the other side of campus for a meeting, you know, that um, that it's going to take you like 30 minutes to walk what should be a five-minute walk um, and that sort of thing. And I think that constantly having to ask for things to remind people, it is exhausting and I can see why people just sort of give up or just sort of try to stay low and not attract attention. With the new diversity and inclusion uh strategic plan Mm -hmm. that we have at the university level, do you think the disability issues have been addressed sufficiently in it or at all? Well, I I note there's a disability action plan. I think one of the the disappointments for me uh, has been that there hasn't been enough attention given to disability um, in the university, disability of staff. So there's been a lot of attention to, or maybe not a lot, but much more attention to disability and equity for students. But for staff, it's quite a different thing. So even something so simple as, you know, you've acquired a disability and you might need adjustments. Who do you tell? Is there someone to declare this to so it goes down in some record so that you don't then have to raise it in every conversation with every person every time you talk to, you know, somebody asks you to do it. Because there are systems like that. You know, companies have like a disability passport. It goes on there, goes on your record. And then every time there's something comes up, it comes up with your information. Um, but there doesn't, we, we don't seem to have done anything like that. So again, it's putting people in the position where they have to constantly... Um, ask for things, negotiate things, explain things to people who are not their supervisor, but maybe they just work with or whatever else, negotiate expectations. Um, and I don't think it's necessary. Like, I think there's, there has to be, there is a better way of doing that. What is a better way for our university and for organisations out there? What do you think? Well, I think having a clear system for if you have a particular condition, this is the system, this is the process that you go through, this is the people you can talk to about it, um, this is this is the possibilities for what can be done for you, um, this is the people you can contact if things aren't working for you, that sort of thing. Like it's not, again, it's not rocket science, but um, we haven't had that to date and I can say that from my own personal experience. That is mind-blowing. And I thought we might, have, for example, if you have got a certain disability that makes movement really hard for you. And then, as you mentioned, for example, you have a meeting at the center of a campus, at the chancellery, for example, building that you have to get to. It's a in-person meeting. There is no one you can call and tell them, can you please come and help me or nothing. Well, not to my knowledge. Um, and I mean, I'm, I'm not wanting to single our university out because I worked for another university and I had um, I was on crutches and had an injury and I'd arranged for campus, you know, the campus drivers to take me um, to tutorials because it was a very, very big campus and I couldn't get from tutorial to tutorial because they were on the other side of campus from each other back to back the hour and it would take me 25 minutes 
and um, they didn't show up to pick me up from the building. And I rang and they said, well, we're not here to do that for you. So I ended up being late to the tutorial every week because I was on crutches. And, you know, that's, I've been on my, I've been on crutches probably about four or five times now in my life. But um, yeah, it's, I mean, and it's not just physical disability, like there's a whole raft of invisible disabilities people have that, that um, have their own sort of challenges and people, you know, not believing that, that you actually have some sort of restriction because they can't see it. That is a really good point, specifically the, not disability, but mental health issues that really, that are sometimes permanent or temporarily either way, that really slows you down in some aspects. As far as I know, we have one day per year, which is called, Are You Okay?, and then everything becomes yellow and black and everyone asks, oh, are you okay? And yeah, but the pretty much 364 other days in a year, we do not ask each other, are you okay? Or as you mentioned, there aren't any mechanisms or systems that, yeah, we have got like psychologists or consulting services um, and yes, we are talking about university because we work at university, we're familiar with the systems. I mean, it can be probably extrapolated to other systems and organizations, but we don't have that, right? So um, if I've got any kind of mental disability or any kind of mental health issues, there's literally nothing. Yeah. And if you say, are you okay? And someone says, no, what do you do? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I've tried, I tried that one year. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? Were you the respondent? They just, or? They just didn't. Yeah. yeah, no, I said, no, I'm not. Of course I'm not. Mm. I mean, it was during COVID and everything else. But um, yeah, so um, yeah, look, actually mental health and mental illness is one of the things that I focus on in my teaching when I'm trying to illustrate disability because I think um, that... Students can certainly relate to that because we, you know, they might think, well, people with physical disabilities, that's, that's that, those group over there. I'm not, never going to be part of that. But I think it's, it is actually something that most people can relate to because they'll know someone or they might experience themselves. Um, and, you know, we need to take that seriously. And, um, you know, there's a lot of professions, I think, that have higher rates of mental health issues and mental illness than others. Lawyers, for example, where we're recording this in the Melbourne Law School. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Oops. Yeah. I think the thing is, is for that group, like the profession or the university, to reflect on what is it about our systems of work our ways of working, our culture, our expectations of what employees should be able to do that creates the conditions in which people are becoming unwell. So, okay, people might come to an organisation with a pre-existing condition, running out, but, you know, people, people, those conditions or people who didn't start off with a condition um, might actually develop one over time. And we need to think about okay, how did the organisation and work actually contribute to that? I mean, we, you know, we get into health and safety and wellbeing, but it all sort of interconnects. And I'm actually quite passionate about that because behind all of this is a real desire to make work um, just more humane 
and to think about critically about our own workplaces and the ways that we work and questioning some of those assumptions. Um, for example, in academia, I'm, I'm calling it a culture of overwork. That's the label I'm putting on it because you have to name it in order for it to be recognised. So, okay, so that's, yeah, so it's a culture of overwork. It's celebrated, it's valorised, you know, it's romanticised. You know, you have to dedicate your entire life to this because it's your vocation. And, you know, I don't want to sort of fight people on that. But at the same time, are the performance standards reasonable? Um, if the majority of people um, have to work so many hours and dedicate their entire life to actually coming close to achieving them, maybe it's time to revisit the performance standards. Maybe it's time to think about, is this actually reasonable or not? And how are we perhaps contributing to some of the problems that we're seeing that aren't going to be fixed with, you know, sort of little well-being measures that the organisation might do. Yeah, academia, from personal experience, it you can... Because the wider you cast your net, the more fish you get, right? Especially for more junior academics, like a senior lecturer that is me, and you want to get a promotion to associate professor, and then the criteria, at least for a research-intensive university like our university, is to be a thought leader in your field of work that means interpreted into publishing in journals that have got 99% rejection rate. And that means in addition to teaching, service and leadership and all other projects and impact and engagement projects that might come up every now and then, you have to work all the time. Yeah, because you don't know what's going to pay off and what isn't. Yeah. So you just do everything. Because you're trying to cover all bases and, you know, you're being told, you know, you need to do some engagement as well as leadership. So you end up spreading yourself across all sorts of things, too anxious to say no. Um, and in a system where I would say, you know, a lot of people feel like nothing they do is ever good enough. They don't get a lot of positive feedback. They have to deal with a lot of rejection. Um, the payoffs are very long term, if at all. Um, the hours of work are very long. And if you just took out the university bit and you described that to someone and said, would you like this job? Would you aspire to do this? Who's going to sign up for it? <laughs> Think about it like that. That is so true. And th th speaking of mental health and rejections that you get in academia, you get rejected for most of your papers. Um, you get rejected for grant applications. Yes. Yeah. Um, you sometimes might get, unless you are a super teacher, really harsh critics from your students. So literally everyone is sending you a signal. <laughs> yeah. That <laughs> I'm so sorry that you suck. You suck. You suck. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and it's really hard to to not take that personally. Absolutely. And I think part of the socialisation and, and the growing of being an academic is developing a thicker skin. But some of us are never going to have a very thick skin. We might have slightly thicker than when we started with, started off with. And I think it, it pays to remember that when you're dealing with more junior people or students or PhD students, whatever, that, that they possibly haven't developed that thick skin, that that's something that is going to come over time. 
And, you know, you're going to feel it like you feel that rejection. It stings, right? And we have to be very bloody minded to keep going in, under these conditions. And I mean, when don't, I don't want to make out like academia doesn't have any benefits or any rewards. You know, it's, it's a privilege to be able to um, research the things that you're interested in. Um, but, yeah, I think it, it, it behoves us to be critical, um, critically reflexive about our own workplaces and organisations and try to improve them as well as if, if, particularly if we're teaching that to our students and actually working on it as part of our research. Absolutely. So these days you are working on disability um, groups and then you work on mental health. So different types of disabilities, either physical or mental, mm -hmm. or mental health issues and how that would interpret in the workplace um, situation. Is there any other topic that you work on on diversity and inclusion that you would like to share with us? Um, well, I, I sort of have a long-standing interest in age because going back, you know, to when I was young. <laughs> um, so I do sort of um, touch on that from time to time, come back to it because I, I do find it fascinating of all the sort of social identities or categories around the thing with age is it has a fluidity and a contingency that is built into it. So it's unlikely that most people are going to, over the over a period of time, they're unlikely to change. It's not it's not uh, impossible, but it's likely they're going to change racial groups, or it's unlikely they're going to change, um, you know. Uh, well, they might acquire a disability, but it's it's probably far less often. But there's a normative fluidity to age, which means you you will be younger, then you will be middle aged, then you will be older, or whatever category, whatever name we're going to come up to make it more palatable to be older. <laughs> Seniors. Um, well, whatever. Uh, yeah, and and I think that's unique about age. And I think the the points at which we draw the the boundaries to those categories are highly arbitrary. So, you know, um, people consider older workers to be those aged forty five and above. Sometimes it's fifty four and above. Jesus, yeah. What if forty five to me is like so young? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. There is no objective thing underlying this. It's a cultural construction. Um, but for certain, talking about intersection between different diversity groups, um, if I go back to gender and age, um, women are considered older at younger ages than men. So there was a paper um, some time ago called Never the Right Age because it's like women sort of went from being patted on the head because they were seen as young and wouldn't know what they were talking about to sort of having maybe a glory year where they were the right age and then flipping into being considered too old. Um, in different professions, people are considered too old at different points in time at different ages. So um, for me, age is interesting in that perspective. And it also seems like it's one of the last acceptable isms, the last acceptable prejudices that a lot of people a lot of people hold or are able to declare in a way they probably wouldn't with race and gender and so other things. So ageism is a real thing in organisation setting. And yeah. do you have a personal experience or from research, do you have any insights into as we age as women, 
do we get treated differently or do we get discriminated against differently? And if so, how does that work or how does it show itself? Okay, so um, in the case of um, older women, if you like, I think I think there are various sort of stereotypes that come into play. I mean, everybody talks about, you know, the greater invisibility of older women. So we just sort of tune out when older women are talking uh, about things um, and discount what they say or don't consider them for leadership positions because we think that they're too old or we assume that they've got, um, they're more interested in family than they are in career. I mean, it could be a whole range of things. I mean, I'm interested in ageism against younger people too. And I think that is fascinating and the way that that has evolved over time. And an entire industry has sprung up around um, managing multiple generations at work and particularly managing younger people because somehow they're a big problem. And I just, oh, don't get me started. I could, I just want to tear that limb from limb. Um, and, you know, talking to students about what's their experience of ageism, of people writing them off because they consider them too young, about the sort of derogatory labels that circulate in, in different countries um, about being young. Um, and, yeah, so, I don't know. I think age is a diversity category that just keeps giving, but maybe I'm biased. I, I didn't know in, in older ages you experience kind of similar biases against you than you do in younger ages in um, in some of some of the meetings that I've been with um, older male colleagues of mine. What I have personally experienced was that when I express an idea, it has been taken sometimes, not always, less seriously less intellectually valuable compared to my male colleagues who are also a bit older. So gender and age. And it's fascinating that probably men are considered to be to have more wisdom when they're aging um, and their their ideas and opinions matter more due to quote unquote more experience compared to Females of similar age or females of a younger age. Um, not to add that, like being also from an international background or look differently. or And one might say that, yeah, no, no I'm trying to be, to be really fair, um, but it's kind of unconscious bias yeah. that we have. Yeah. Uh, I, I think there was a study showing that students tend to evaluate male professors, especially middle-aged male professors who like more professorish, which is a typical stereotype of having a beard and glasses, um, better and higher compared to all other demographics. Um, because they conform to the stereotype of what an academic is supposed to be. So men tend seem to gain some gravitas in depending on the occupation they're in. So, you know, if they were in advertising that would be judged very differently. Um, but in academia, um, it seems to go that it's, you know, being an older man is, I would say, an advantage in terms of being credible, um, being taken seriously both by colleagues and um, being looked favourably, looked on favourably by students. Mm, and... <laughs> 
not not quite sure what to do with that, but uh, that's been my observation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes I, I I feel like talking about it will raise some awareness for people to to have that in the back of their mind as much as they can. But um, when we are when we are in a meeting, completely irrelevant topic, you cannot say anything because it just. Uh, it doesn't go well with the context, right? Yeah. Like, guys, take me seriously. I have got an opinion yeah. and I have got a brain to think. So, yeah. but uh, yeah. Well, yeah. then it then what happens is your reaction to it becomes the problem, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She's too emotional, or she's yeah. Too, yeah. And um, I've heard it. I've heard it um, called a ton of feathers. So that's how you that's how you drown, or that's how you sink under the weight of a ton of feathers. It's no one thing that. Um, does you in it's the repetition of very small you know seemingly minor incidents that if you called anyone out you'd be seen as overreacting but if that's your lived if that's your life and that's what you experience over time then it has it has a weight to it and the interesting manifestation of that in society is that they call women who express themselves karens if you have heard of that name, they call yeah. it, she's a Karen. Mm-hmm. But do we have a male equivalent no. of that? No. Um, anyway, interesting times. <laughs> how does the future look, Susan? Oh, how does the future look? Well, hmm. I'd like to see us radically rethink what makes up a job and how we can do it and think about the redistribution of work. Um, I'm not, um, that's, that's a very long-term sort of project and probably fairly idealistic, but I think so many of the things that we've been doing for so long aren't working that maybe it's time to actually start to rethink, um, those sort of basic things about, um, what do we think of as a job? Can we decouple things and put them back together in different ways? Can we redistribute work between people in a way that um, makes it more, um, you know, both more more um, flexible, um, more sustainable for the people involved. Um, yeah. Um, I, it depends what direction you really want to go in there. You know, I think it's... Uh, I mean, if we, th- if we think about ageing, um, you know, people staying in the workforce for longer for all sorts of reasons, both um, particularly financial. So we've been talking about that for 30 years, 40 years. And um, ageism against older workers is still entrenched, particularly if they find themselves out of the workforce. They have a very hard time getting back in, and that doesn't seem to have changed at all. So um, I sort of come back to my original point, is that left to their own devices, social systems reproduce themselves. So... There needs to be some sort of um, concerted intervention um, for things to change. And what would that intervention look like? Well, it depends which group we're talking about. For ageism, for example, for older groups in the workforce? Mm, Well, um, I think it depends on... See, I mean, 
it, it's hard to compel people and, and we, we are in a society where we don't like to overly regulate organisations um, and regulation and legislation is probably the last point. It's probably the least effective, right? So making things, um, you know, um, age discrimination and stuff like that, it's notoriously hard to prove some of these things. So, and it requires the individual to actually come forward and make a complaint. So it, it puts the onus on the individual, again, to do a lot of the work. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't have any easy answers. So we are about to, I think we went actually a bit over time as well. Um, I think the, the discussion has been really interesting. Any final remarks for, for the podcast? And we would love to have you again, by the way. I think I've been a bit too honest. I love that. That's the whole point of the podcast. Yeah, I know. But, uh, well, I, I, didn't, I didn't know whether it was or it wasn't. But um, look, I think I joke sometimes that I'm an accidental academic and now I'm an accidental professor and you know people meet me and they go you're a professor you're an academic you don't seem like one and I think listen no one is more surprised than me <laughs> no one is more surprised to me that I have ended up here you asked me how I did it I don't know I actually don't know um, I think it would help a lot of us to actually acknowledge the the role of timing and luck in our perhaps our career success because that certainly uh, was the case for me I know there was hard work involved too but you know cool thank you so much Susan thank you Kiddo. Well. thanks thank you for listening and please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast series please also reach out let us know what you think and whether you'd like to contribute to plus one podcast series <laughs>